You can't trust a man's life to your little notes and pictures. Why not? Because your notes could be unreliable. Memory's unreliable. Ah, oh, please. No, 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 really. Memory can change the shape of a room. It can change the color of a car. And memories can be distorted. They're just an interpretation. They're not a record. Welcome to Narratively Speaking, the podcast that explores the power of story in all its forms, its role in society, and how it helps to shape the ideas we think we believe in. I'm your work in progress host, Harv, and thanks so much for tuning in. Did you tune in? What did, what did you tune to? There's no real tuning anymore, is it? It's a podcast. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for expending your bandwidth. So I was spending a lot of time on the tram commuting this week. Um, and you know what that means? It means I get to listen to a lot of podcasts and do a bit of thinking, which is always a good thing. Um, I hate the commute, but I do like having time to think. Uh, however, I can do that while I'm shitting as well. So I don't really need the commute for that. Um, and at the uh, length of time that it takes me to shit these days, it's pretty much equivalent Actually, let me just uh, redo the intro, shall we? Um, welcome to Narratively Shitting, the podcast that explores Harv's bowel movements in all its forms, its role in society, and how Harv's shit shapes the ideas we think we believe in. I promise I won't speak about pooping again on the podcast. I, I do apologize for that. Anyway, so I was on the tram uh, and I was thinking about how all forms of art are story. And uh, you might think that's a bit of a stretch uh, when it comes to things like sculpture, for instance. But when you look at a sculpture, your mind fills in the gaps. So you're seeing a, a figure of a person or an object of some kind, and uh, your mind is compelled to extrapolate a story from what you're seeing. So in a sense, uh, art inspires story, at least. And uh, I guess if you take into account the intention of the artist, it tells a story. It may not tell the same story to everybody, but then again, a story doesn't always have the same meaning to every listener either. So I don't think consistency in interpretation is a prerequisite for something to be considered story. So the reason this occurred to me, I guess, is that I was listening to the Film Riot podcast by Ryan Connolly. Um, which is a new podcast from uh, the YouTube channel of the same name, uh, which I've been a long time viewer of. And he was talking to a musical composer uh, about the relationship between a composer and a director and how music contributes to the story of the film. Unless it's otherwise called for by the director, you don't want to be letting on more about the story than is being told already, if that makes sense. You know, you don't want to be yeah. implying this guy's bad until we know he's bad, unless <laughs> unless you want to know he's bad. Because right. if a guy walks onto a screen, you know, walks into the scene rather, I can let the audience know who that guy is, what he's going to do, you know, his past, his present and his future. I can do that musically in that scene, but it's like, is that, <laughs> you know, and then in the, in real six, when he's revealed as the, as the bad guy, you know, it will fall flat because you already know everything about this guy through the music. That's Daniel James, who's uh, composed music for Terminator Genesis, Ride Along, Truth or Dare. 
uh, a bunch of computer games, so pretty experienced and obviously knows what he's talking about. But I, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, well, of course, you know, he's making music for story-based art forms like movies and computer games. So, of course, he relates music to story. But for me, I guess this is just an intuitive question. I mean, I've always had a preference for albums that feel like they have a consistent narrative through line. Uh, You know, one song leads to the other. They're related to each other. And you listen to the whole thing in the order that the artist intended. And you get more of a picture from the whole than you do from the individual songs themselves. But what about something like photography? Photography is such a powerful medium. It really does have the ability to create change. When I take somebody's photograph, it's not just that I've just created an image, it's that I've got their story and I can help that story to be heard by the world. In the course of my work, I found myself in in Afghanistan. We were on patrol one day, we'd been ambushed. And unfortunately that day, um, I stepped on an IED. I never lost consciousness. Um, I remember lying there straight away and I could see yeah, most of my legs had gone. Uh, my arm was, was badly damaged. And in all honesty, I thought that was it. I thought that would be, you know, the moment that I just drifted off. I was told I wouldn't live independently. And I think the idea of working was completely out of the question to anybody. And I doubted it myself at times. Because, you know, if you go and photograph somebody in a, in a war zone, if you photograph an injured civilian, for me, a great amount of responsibility comes with that. I would be very limited. But what I can do is use the, the one gift I've been given by this accident, which was my empathy, which was my connection with people. That's uh, Giles Dooley there in a documentary by uh, Wex Photographic. So I want to talk about narrative responsibility. And, you know, this is a term I've kind of coined myself, I guess. It's not something that gets a lot of traffic on Google, I'd imagine. Uh Although if you do happen to Google it, you'll find a really interesting case study about a couple of Japanese parents trying to decide uh, what to do with their daughter. So, you know, go check it out. Well, no, no, not now. Not now. Wait, I'm, we're in the middle of a podcast. Can you finish listening to this first? Fucking hell, it's hard to keep people's attention. But if all forms of art are forms of story, and we've already established that story, at least to some extent, affects human consciousness, then what responsibility does the storyteller have for the effects of the story that he or she tells? And again, here we are talking about consciousness. It just seems to keep coming back like a bad smell. And now I'm not going to start talking about my bowels again, but if you were in the room with me, I mean, I mean, let's just say I didn't have a healthy breakfast. And what responsibility do I have for telling you that? I should probably be put in the stocks, to be honest, for it. Um, So narrative responsibility. Um, At first glance, you might want to say, well, you know, the author doesn't have any responsibility for the stories they tell. They're just telling a story. How people react to it is up to them. And you'd probably have a point. Uh, Certainly up until recently, I wouldn't have even considered the idea of narrative responsibility. I used to write you know, horror stories when I was a kid or whatever and never gave a thought to how that might affect someone else or even less so the collective consciousness of the world. However, with this new story premise that we're exploring in the podcast, I really need to sort of rethink that position because if we're going to talk about how story affects consciousness, 
then I guess the inevitable flip side of that is that we need to acknowledge that storytellers have power and hence responsibility. Yes, that's right. I've watched Spider-Man. You've been given a gift here. With great power comes great responsibility. And of course, this is an intuitive thing as well, because, you know, let's say you were telling a story to a child. You're not going to tell a story about like a woman who looks exactly like his mother getting eaten by a lion, are you? I mean, you you know intuitively that what you tell that kid is going to have an effect. So why is it different for adults? Do you really believe adults are so much more resilient than children that they can just absorb pretty much anything and not feel trauma, not be affected? I mean, the way I think of like consciousness of personality is this series of uh, layers that gets simpler and simpler as you get towards the core. So on the inside, we're basically all just scared little weeping kids, you know, sitting in a dark corner, grabbing our knees, rocking back and forth, muttering under our breath. I mean, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm sucking my thumb right now. Oh, hang on. Wait, that's not my thumb. Let's step in the Wayback Machine to the late 1600s, where it was pretty much settled science that light traveled as a particle. There have been a lot of experiments to back this up, and it even had the support of Sir Isaac Newton, and he was not known to be wrong about things. But then a physicist named Thomas Young created the double slit experiment, and it consisted of a box through which light traveled through two very tiny slits, and then a little eye hole where he could look in and see what that did when it projected to the other side of the box. The thinking was that if it traveled like a particle, it would create two parallel lines on the other side of the box because it was projecting through those lines, just like bowling balls flying through pins at the end of a bowling lane. That's not what happened. What he saw instead was the same strange pattern of lines that you're seeing in this experiment. Young recognized what he was seeing right away. It's an interference pattern. By the 1920s, the physics community had much better instruments at their disposal, and they decided to add another layer to the double slit experiment. You'll see this over and over again, experiments building on top of other experiments, increasing in complexity and weirdness. So the new twist in the experiment was basically asking the question that if the photons were behaving as waves and colliding with each other on the other side of the slit, what would happen if you fired the photons through one at a time? The guess is that you would get the particle pattern of two complementary parallel lines. After all, how can you get a wave interference pattern when there's nothing to interfere with? So they gave it a try and to everyone's shock and amazement, they still got the interference pattern. But how? <laughs> How? There is nothing for that photon to be bumping into. What could it possibly be colliding with to create this pattern? The answer? Itself. You see, somehow this photon was going through both slits at the same time and then colliding into itself on the other side of the barrier. And this revealed a fundamental truth about quantum mechanics. In a waveform state, quantum objects exist in a probability state, meaning that at any given time, it could go through the left slit or the right slit or hit the barrier. But eventually the waveform has to go back down to a particle, and that's called the waveform collapsing. In the case of the double slit experiment, that happens when it hits the back wall. But that's where things just start getting weird. Because for the next evolution of the double slit experiment, they wanted to see if they could measure the probability states as they went through the slits. So they set up a little detector on one of the slits to see if they could measure it. This was called the which way experiment. The results shook scientific understanding to its core and remains unexplained to this very day. Because this time, the pattern on the back of the wall displayed what you would expect with particles going through the slits. Two lines, no interference, no waves. This means that the waveform collapsed before it went through the slit. Why? Because it was being observed. This proved that the act of observing the particle 
caused the waveform to collapse. So if you've already heard of the double slit experiment, I do apologize. That was probably extremely boring. However, this is not something that uh, I was particularly across. I'd heard of it before, but I never really looked into it uh, until now. So um, why am I uh, highlighting the double slit experiment? Well, the key to the double slit experiment is that the very act of observation seems to change the behavior of particles. Uh, they behave probabilistically if they're not being observed, but they behave with defined physical properties when they are observed. So the point at which they become observed collapses their behavior. It's an interesting idea. I Honestly, uh, it's, it's a little bit mind-blowing when you really think about it, um, because you would think that the act of observation is completely passive. Certainly makes you think of porn in a completely different way, doesn't it? Whew. I need to send some apologies out. Um, the reason I bring this up is that we're talking about narrative responsibility. And the point that I'm trying to make, I guess, is that you can't really know in advance how your actions are going to affect other people. And we don't know how affecting people affects the wider world. There's this idea of collective consciousness. And it sounds like pseudoscience. It's, it's one of those things that um, new age types talk about quite a lot. Um, and I've thought about it a lot as well. And I try to come up with a way of thinking about that that makes sense to me. And to be honest, I've never had a great deal of luck. Um, just like the idea of consciousness, it, it, it just seems a little bit magic-y to me. You know, there's got to be uh, a grounded explanation. It's a concept that makes sense as a belief system to live by, I think, that your actions, your words, your stories affect other people. And that is a responsibility. And while I wouldn't want to say, you know, be careful what you write or be careful what short films you make, you might fuck up a toddler. I would still say there's something to be said for putting out positive messages or at least being conscious that you might change the world with what you do and say. So at least know what direction you're trying to change the world in. You know, I made a, a video a while ago um, for the Popcorn Lobotomy channel, and I, I apologize for mentioning my own stuff. I, I don't mean to plug it, but it, I guess in a lot of ways, uh, this video that I'm mentioning is the impetus for this podcast. Um, I was making movie reviews, but I was pretty bored making reviews, talking about movies. It just didn't feel particularly meaningful. So um, at the I used to do these conspiracy rants in my videos where I'd speak very quickly and feverishly about various conspiracy theories that were brought up by the movie I was reviewing. And for these last two videos, I changed the rant. I dropped the music um, and decided to just speak kind of plainly, still feverishly, strangely enough, and you'll hear that. I'll play it in a second but more as me than as the character that I was playing while I was reviewing those movies. And uh, I said this. We're creative. Do you understand what that means? We create stuff. Isn't that something only gods are supposed to do? Human beings take the little bits of light being miraculously to us by our sun and we rearrange and manifest that energy into the world in whatever way we see fit. Jesus, can you imagine if I did the whole podcast in that fucking voice? I'd give myself a fucking hernia. But presentation aside, that's something I still believe in. That idea that we take the little bits of light beamed miraculously to us by our sun is something that uh, I'd been thinking about for a while when I did that rant. 
And I still think about today, and I guess it actually links back to the Michael Rupert story where he was talking about the amount of oil coming out of the ground facilitating the population. It's all about energy. And all of the energy that we get for this planet is beamed to us by our sun. That's why it was an object of worship you know, in ancient times and probably should still be today. But no, we just whack on a pair of sunglasses and squint and say, fucking hell, it's bright. And then God goes, you know what? Fuck you guys. I made a fucking perfectly good sun and you can't even take five seconds to appreciate it and shut the fuck up. Hey, by the way, here's a hurricane. Enjoy that. But yeah, I mean, even oil is just stored sunlight, right? So at the end of the day, that's all we do. We're just moving energy around. There's positive energy. There's negative energy. We define what those things are. And we take the energy that's given to us and we transform it. We're just transformers. We're filters for light. So at the end of the day, what we create with the energy that comes into our bodies, with our minds and our hands is just a filtration process. We're taking energy and we're transforming it into something. What we transform it into is our decision. And that's where consciousness becomes important, in my opinion, at least as a philosophical device. And what of story? Well, at a a minimum, story is one of the things we can create with our consciousness. It's one of the things we can filter our energy into. But I would also posit that perhaps it's the most important thing. But I think underestimating the importance of story in the human experience is a fucking big mistake. Story is a part of our very fabric, infused in our very nature. When you meet a new person, it's always, hey, what's your story? Or when you meet a new dude who acts like a cunt, you say, What's his fucking story? We sit around campfires and tell him. Our kids demand to hear them before they go to bed each night. And then in turn, as kids, we make up our own. We've built massive libraries that house thousands of them and borders, governments and religions are all built around them. Which means, in a sense, it's what we fight our wars over. Good story stays with you and it compels you to retell it until it spreads like a virus. It's almost as if story is a live organism, an energy that has a will and a charisma all of its own. The format of information that is most compatible to feed our mind's capability for understanding is exactly that. Story. We get nothing out of ones and zeros staring at screens of numbers, but I'll tell you what, you tell a good story and you've got something very special. You've got shared understanding. You know, I once read a crazy bunch of posts from an anonymous guy who claimed to be a high-level member of the Illuminati. Somewhere in the middle of all the insane claims this poster made, he said the Illuminati have an unnamed belief system that holds that our God the God of this plane in which we all exist, wanted to know himself. So he split his consciousness into millions of pieces and scattered them around the universe to see if they could find their way back into a hole. He said we each carry a piece of that God consciousness inside us and that we're all just seeking knowledge of ourselves, a group of lost, confused, sentient beings with self-inflicted amnesia. I know, I know, it's all a little bit esoteric but it's also a little bit beautiful. So why am I telling you this? Because I think it makes sense of this obsession we humans have with story. Hell, the meaning is contained in the word story, to store. 
before we had floppy disks, before we had the printing press, maybe even before we had words, story was the only way we knew to store knowledge across generations. Story is the way we learn about ourselves. And what if that insane forum poster who thought he was an interdimensional member of the Illuminati, what if he's right? If we're little bits of God consciousness just trying to understand our own nature, then story is more than just a fun entertainment. It's the meaning of life. So two things there. One, if you ever complain about how annoying my voice is on this podcast, go listen to that video and you'll see I'm doing my best. Number two, that was the kernel that began this podcast. That was the avenue of investigation that I wanted to pursue. And I had a friend uh, come to me and he said, that that was his favorite video that I ever made. And I didn't quite get it. I, I'm not sure if I thought of it as particularly significant. I mean, I knew I liked the message, but I didn't think of it as anything universal or something that people would respond to too much until Joel said th that he thought there was something to it. Uh, he didn't even go into detail, but um, there was a part of me that just sort of silently agreed with him. There is something to it, you know, if you get nothing else out of this podcast, just start listening to how often you hear the word story or variations of it like narrative in the everyday course of your life. Start hearing that word and you start thinking about things differently. You, you start to hear it everywhere in all industries, in all walks of life, whether you know it or not, consciously, subconsciously. We're all tuned into story like, like a radio. So when talking about narrative responsibility, I'd flip that on its head. I'd say not only do we have a responsibility to tell positive stories if we're going to tell them, but we have a responsibility to share our stories full stop. I had a friend the other day, we were talking about uh, robotics and how uh, AI is going to take over the world and no one's going to have a job anymore. And I said that I could envisage a future where we don't need to have jobs. And, uh, you know, infrastructure is uh, facilitated by technology and not everybody needs to work. And he said, you can't benefit from a system unless you contribute to it. And I just said to him, uh, why? And he looked at me blankly. And in that case, I do believe that, uh, you know, if technology came far enough that it was so easy to create abundance that not everybody needs to contribute. But I believe that with a caveat, I still think we have a responsibility to contribute, but I think that would free us up to contribute in a way that's more meaningful than sweeping the streets or counting the, counting the dollars. If sharing stories and gaining shared understanding is the meaning of life, if that's the purpose that we're here, uh, you know, as a fragmented being trying to understand ourselves, wouldn't it be ideal if we were freed up to, you know, create art, to tell stories, to do whatever it is we're compelled to do? You know, the stuff that we do on the weekends when we're not forced to go and get the bucks to, to you know, help a, a corporation or a company or a business owner to make their fortune while we're neglecting our own. And at the end of the day, isn't a fortune in knowledge more valuable than a bunch of paper notes? 
So let's tackle this idea, which you kind of flagged briefly when we were talking about the dystopian generation of gamers, which almost certainly is a, is a kind of myth. The, the idea that, that meaning is to be found in most of the jobs that people are doing. And I, you, you have a, a quote by a historian who I had never heard of, Benjamin Honeycutt, which is rather amusing, but he's, I mean, he's said that if a cashier's job were a video game, we would consider it the most punishingly boring game ever designed. And yet magically, when we call it a job, politicians praise it as a, as a source of meaning and dignity and fulfillment and really the kind of the only conceivable source that like, what would this person be doing with their life if they weren't a cashier deriving so much meaning from this job? And yet so Honeycutt says that purpose and meaning and identity and fulfillment and creativity and autonomy, these are things that positive psychology has shown us to be necessary for our well-being, but these are absent in many, if not most, jobs, and certainly what we would consider the average job. Yet there is this problem of meaning, that people need to find something to do with, the, with their lives that is fulfilling to one or another degree. And it is, is just a fact that because virtually everyone has to work to survive, work is the placeholder for that project. And in the absence of real necessity, we will have millions of aimless, opiate-abusing, alcohol-abusing people who have just become unmoored. And if you look at the data, it's the case that if someone doesn't have a job, especially if they're a man, they tend to disintegrate into antisocial and self-destructive behaviors. I mean, that's just, again, facts and data. So the, the goal is to try and get people into environments where they're not all cashiers, <laughs> which is really, to me, like one of the dystopian futures to avoid is that the government comes around and says, hey, like you can make enough to live if you do this make work nonsense job and like stand there in the park and, you know, play tour guide or whatever that you know, it seems like the, the subsistence job of the day for the unskilled. So that, that to me is uh, what we have to avoid. And the major challenge really is what does provide the structure and purpose and fulfillment that we imagine work to provide to millions and millions uh, of Americans every day. So there you go. Sam Harris kind of agrees with me. And that's him talking to Andrew Yang on the topic of universal basic income. It's a very interesting podcast, well worth a listen. It seems to me uh, there's a sort of failure of imagination in trying to envisage a world where work isn't the centre of our lives. But I don't think we're going to need to envisage it. It is going to come to us one way or another. So this is really the reason why... I think it's important to elevate the status of story in our society because when I try to envisage a world where AI has replaced a lot of work and we don't need to work to maintain the infrastructure and the support systems that we need to survive, something has to replace that. We need meaning in our lives. Uh, there's beyond just uh, you know eating, consuming and entertaining ourselves and you know you can see things like cell phones and ipads and netflix and so on uh, taking over the world and you know there's this problem of the millennials all sort of having their heads buried in their phones 
But it's, let's face it, it's not just millennials. Uh, those things are pretty fucking addictive for all of us. So we're, we're all sort of like escaping into this other world anyway. And I guess it comes down to one question, which is, are you a creator or a consumer? And my argument would be, you probably should be both. Because if you're just consuming without creating, then you're not contributing in a meaningful way to society. And you might think society won't miss you, you know, that that your voice isn't important and your story doesn't need to be told. But let me put it to you this way. What percentage chance does something need to be for you to call it a miracle? Is it a million to one? How about a hundred million to one? Well, you're one in eight billion right now, or is it 9 billion, whatever it is, uh, you know, by 2020 or whatever. And somehow you've managed to be completely unique. You're the only you in the entire universe that has exactly the same set of experiences and thoughts and ideas and genetics. Not one single organism on the planet has the same perspective that you do. So use your voice. Say something uniquely you. Say something that you find truthful, that cuts to your own core, whether or not you think other people are going to want to listen, because your input is important. And if you don't believe that, maybe you just need to tell yourself better stories.